How we doing, family? Good, good. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. If you're new this morning around here, we want to welcome you again. We're glad you could be with us. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we're glad you can join us as we worship Jesus together. If you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 22, Psalm 22, or you could follow along on the screen behind me. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8, 1 through 8 as we uh, dive into God's Word together. Hear the reading of God's Word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today with another question. The question is, how could a good God allow suffering? How could a good God allow suffering? Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the God who speaks. Lord, make us into people who listen, but not only hear, but do. Help us to hear what you are saying in your word to us as you speak to us in your word. Make it plain to us. Make it real to us. Bring home where we need to repent, where we need to believe, where we need to trust you. Whatever it is you have for us today, God, mold us into the image of Christ that we might bring you more glory. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In 2004, it was the day after Christmas, a massive tsunami devastated the coast off the Indian Ocean. It started, scientists realized later, with an earthquake that was 31 miles below the ocean surface. 31 miles. They, they say that it, it brought about so much power that the power that was released from that earthquake was equivalent to thousands of atomic bombs erupting under the water. Think about that. Thousands of atomic bombs. And so because of that, there was these massive waves that were coming. Some of these waves were 100 feet high. And they were traveling at 500 miles an hour. Obviously, that doesn't give much time for people to react or to uh, even evacuate or anything like that. And so, of course, it, it hits the, the ocean, uh, the, the, what is it, the land. And, and it, because it hits the land so quickly with so much force, over 250,000 people lost their life making it the most devastating, most deadly tsunami in recorded history. Now, when this happens, this kind of tragic event, uh, and so many people lose their lives, so many people wake up the next day without family, without friends, without all their possessions, all of these tra uh, tragic things, people are starting to ask questions. And so the weeks following after that, the newspapers and the magazines and the TV channels who are covering this, they're asking a common question, where was God? Where was God? 
And so people are writing about this, and, and one of the uh, journalists in New York, he said this in his article as he was reflecting on this question. He said, if God is God, then he's not good. If God is good, then he's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. Do you hear that? As he's wrestling with this tension, he's trying to figure out how can God be God and be good? Or how can he be good and still be God? This problem seems to to come up as we suffer, especially in tragic suffering like this. It starts to question not only the goodness of God, but even the existence of God. The most famous atheists and agnostics in history have always wrestled with this question. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who, who many folks may know and hear that name and, and recognize who he is, he's a British evolutionary biologist who is famous for his many writings about defending atheism and attacking anybody of any belief. Uh, he's a former professor at Oxford University. As he wrestled with this question, listen to his response. He says, our world has precisely the properties that we would expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. I mean, that sounds bleak, because it is. But listen, at least it's honest. Here's what I mean by that. What he's saying is, if there is no God, then none of that suffering has any meaning. None of it has any purpose. It's, it's all meaningless, whether it's evil, whether it's good, however you explain it. He's saying all that you experience in humanity, none of it has any purpose because there is no God. But if there is a God, and there is, how do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of the meaning or the purpose of suffering? How, how do we put these two things together where we've got a God who is good and we've got an issue that seems beyond our explanation what do you do? This is a huge question. And so today we're, we're walking through, uh, continuing our series called Christianity's Biggest Questions. And we've been walking through some, some big questions that are honestly impossible to cover in 35 minutes or 37 if the AV team is nice to me. Uh, but 35 minutes to cover questions that have been around for centuries, thousands of years. And this is one of the biggest questions, one of the hardest questions that we've always wrestled with. What do I do with suffering? What is the meaning of suffering if God really exists? Right, and so we've been looking at other questions, but as we come to this question, it's, uh, it's really like the other questions, not just for us. This is a question to equip us for others, right? Because this is not a question that's just theoretical. This is not a question that you maybe struggle with in a classroom somewhere as you're reading some philosophy book. I mean, it may be that, but for many of us, this is a question that is deeply personal. This is a question that you've experienced loss and pain and broken relationships and sickness and death and all these things. And so we all bring to the table this question full of our own stories. And so as we look at this, one of the things that I want to encourage us is I think the best place in the Bible to deal with this question is the book of Psalms. Because the book of Psalms really gives voice to so much of the human experience. The book of Psalms is a collection of what it looks like to pray a real full prayer life. 
In other words, you're not just praying about little things, or you're not just praying for traveling mercies. You're, you're not just praying that so-and-so has a nice day in the next couple days, right? What you're praying is the fullness of your experience as a human. And one of the biggest experiences we have is, is, is pain and suffering. And so how, do, how does the psalmist deal with that? How do we make sense of a good God allowing suffering? That's what I want to look at today in just the next few minutes that we have. First, we've got to look at feeling forsaken. So if you're, ne- if you're taking notes this morning, feeling forsaken is the first point. The psalmist begins in verse 1. Look at what he says. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Now David, the psalmist here, his opening lines are really this cry from the heart. I mean, he's crying out from his heart saying, God, I, I, I don't know what's happening, but notice right off the bat, notice he doesn't give up on God. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right, So David, right off the bat, he's not dismissing God and saying, I don't want to talk to you. I, I don't want to deal with you. He's saying, I'm still holding on to you. You're my God, but I need some answers. Right? He's saying, I, I'm not content with just some, some nice, sweet Bible verses that are on the back of a Hallmark card, or I'm, I'm not content with just brush it off and, and push through it. I need some answers, God. Like he, He's entering into a wrestling match with God, saying, God, if we're going to deal with this, I need you to be my God, and I need to know what's going on. But here, listen, why? He, he asked the question, why? And why is often the hardest question in our suffering. Why is this happening? And get this, David doesn't get any answers. Right As David cries out to God, he receives nothing back. In fact, as you listen to the story or, or you listen to the prayer, I mean, he, he gets this sense of God feeling distant. God is, is far from him. Have you ever prayed that before? You, in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of the confusion, you're crying out to God, and it's like, God, I've shared my heart with you, and then there's nothing back. You don't have any answers, there's no audible voice, there's no Bible verse that just pops out of the Bible, no one calls you with some word from God, right? There's just nothing back. And not only does he feel distant from God, it's silence. He said, you're silent. God, do you even care? Are you listening to me? Are are you feeling what I'm feeling? Do you see what's happening? God, are you there? That's what he's crying out. And listen, suffering, this this is what happens. Suffering can really disorient our soul. It can really disorient our soul. Uh, Joy Davidman fell in love with the famous author C.S. Lewis back in 1952. And when the two of them fell in love, you can actually watch that there's been, I think, two movies now that have been made about their, their story of love as Joy Davidman meets C.S. Lewis and they fall in love and, and the two of them are writers. She was a fantastic writer in her own, in her own way and um, because they, they were both writers, they felt like they had found soulmates. Like they, they just knew each other so well, they, they loved the same things, they connected so uh, deeply and so they, they were living a wonderful married life until uh, one day Joy fell in the, in the kitchen 
and she fell down in the kitchen, broke her leg. They rush her to the hospital, and when they get her to the hospital and they examine the broken bone, they find that she had terminal bone cancer. Terminal bone cancer. And C.S. Lewis, as he reflected that day, wrote in his uh, journal, he said this that, that day. He said, it was one of the most painful days of my life to hear the sentence of death over my wife. And then just a few short years after that, she passed away as she tried the longest she could to battle through cancer. And this is what he later wrote in his book, A Grief Observed. He said this, he said, I think I am not in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger, get this, the real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread isn't, so there is no God after all. But, so this is what God is like, after all. You hear that? C.S. Lewis is saying, I'm not, I'm not in danger of giving up my belief on God. My danger, my real danger that I'm feeling right now is that I'm going to believe that this God is not good like I thought he was. See, suffering brings out these doubts, these fears, these concerns, these questions. It brings it all to the surface. And the question is, what do you do with them? What, what do you do with that? Because it's going to happen if it hasn't happened already in your life. What are you going to do with it? And, and the first answer that the psalmist teaches here is we have to learn to lament. You have to learn to lament. What, what is lamenting? Lamenting is taking your pain to God. It's taking your pain to God. And listen, the truth is, many of us who, who have been a part of the church for a while, we haven't learned to lament in prayer. We've learned to lie in prayer. Right? We, we've learned to tell lies to ourselves and to God, somehow trying to convince ourselves and to convince God that something is true when it's really not true. But to lament means that you have to be completely honest. You have to say with God, God, this is how I'm really feeling. Like, how, when was the last time you were so honest with God about what you were feeling, what, what you're experiencing? Maybe, maybe it's you've been angry about something that's happening in your family, or, or you've been stressed about your finances, or you've been dealing with loss in you know, a relationship that you've had, whatever it is. But when was the last time you took that pain to God and you said, God, this is really how I'm feeling? This is really how I'm angry. This is really how I'm, I'm doubting. This is really how I, I, I'm, I'm so full of anxiety and fear. Or ask it this way. When was the last time you said something to God that made you almost a little uncomfortable? Like, am I allowed to say that to God? Am I allowed to question that? I mean, if you start praying the Psalms, you might pray some things that make you a little uncomfortable. Because the Psalms have this raw honesty to just say, God, this is where I'm at. And I want to take my pain to you. I want to I deal with it. But what happens is instead of, uh, of dealing with it, we keep it to ourselves. See, lament, listen, lament never lets go of God. Lament is always wrestling with God. But what happens is when you let go of God and, and you try to deal with it yourself, that lament turns into complaint. And you're not lamenting anymore. You're not bringing it to God. You're not sharing with him how you're feeling. You're keeping it to yourself. And that anger, that frustration, that fear, all of that, it, it slowly festers. And it starts to turn into bitterness. It starts to turn into doubt. It starts to turn into things that now are unhealthy in you because you haven't brought it to him. 
Right, and now you start saying things like, God can never be good. God, God doesn't care about me. God, God isn't listening to me. You hear the difference? David says those things, but he doesn't say them to himself. He says them to God. Do you hear that? That that is the crucial difference in lament. Lament is not keeping it to yourself and complaining to yourself or complaining to other people. Lament is saying, I'm bringing this to God. I'm bringing it in his presence. And it never lets go of him. This is why David prays, my God, my God, why? You're still my God. I'm not letting go of you. Why? I mean, what, what do you need to bring to God? I mean, maybe you've been walking through a tough time at your job, or maybe you've been walking through a tough time with your teenagers. I don't know what it is, but maybe you've been walking through a time where you haven't brought it to God yet. It's sitting still in your soul. It's still sitting there. You're festering over it. You're thinking about it. You, you know it comes up all the time when you have just a moment to yourself to pause, and you haven't brought it yet to Him. Do you, do you need to bring it to Him? Because as we deal with suffering, this is not some, some theoretical idea. This, this is a real experience that all of us are struggling with, and you have to take it to him. You have to lament first before you can move forward. But after you lament, what happens next? After lamenting, we have to learn to trust. This is the second point, trusting truth. David continues to pray in verse 3. Look at what he says. He says, yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Old Testament scholar uh, Walter Brueggemann, he has a great insight here on the Psalms. He says that the, the general rhythm of the Psalms is like this. There's an orientation, then there's a disorientation, then there's a reorientation. So to, to break that down a little bit, the orientation is I, I kind of know where I'm at and I'm excited and life is going well and then something blows up and something happens and I'm disoriented, can't find my way, don't know what's going on, don't know who I am, and then I try to reorient myself to God. And listen, that can happen in the same prayer. I mean, it happens in this prayer. It happens multiple times in the same prayer where you feel okay and then you feel off and then you feel back with God and then you feel off again. And isn't that how the praying life works? I mean, prayer is very, uh, you know, it, it's not linear. It's, it's, it's kind of all over the place if you're being honest with God. You're just kind of expressing your heart as it comes. And here's what's happening with David. David is now trying to reorient himself. He's lamented to God. He said, it feels like you've forsaken me. It feels like you're distant, like you're silent. But now I want to remind myself of who you are. Because in suffering, a better question than why is who. It's who. And so David prays, yet you are holy. Right? I know how I feel. I know what I'm experiencing. But I need to remind myself of who you are. I need to remind myself of your holy character. I need to reorient myself to the nature of who God really is because there's none like you. You are holy. But not only who God is, what he does. And I love this in this psalm because David, as he experiences this deep suffering, he reaches back into history and he says, God, I remember because I've heard the stories that you were faithful to our fathers. I remember that, that I've heard the stories that you have been faithful. When, when they prayed, you showed up. When they trusted, you delivered. I look back over history and I see your faithfulness. Because listen, sometimes in our pain, our pain can give us such a limited perspective. 
We get stuck in our pain and all we can think about is what's happening right there in the moment and it's difficult and it's hard. But look, if you can take a step back and you can say, God, I can see what you're doing, not just in my life, but I can see your story in the rest of the people that you're working in. Right? David is saying, I see what's really true, that you are a good God and you've done good for us. That's faith. See, faith is trusting the truth about God. There's a Christian philosopher by the name of Alvin Plantiga who, who deals with this question of suffering and God's goodness. And he uses this illustration, which I, I find is, is, is helpful, very helpful. He, he says this. He says, uh, imagine uh, you, you uh, have noceums. You ever heard of noceums before? These little tiny insects that literally you can't see them to, to the naked eye, right? And so noceums, they, they, even though you can't see them, you've probably experienced them in Florida, maybe at the beach or if you've been camping or somewhere outdoors, there, there are noceums and you can feel them even though you can't see them because their bite is worse than their, their, you know, what, what their size is, it, much, much worse. And so he says, imagine for a moment you were out camping and you brought your dog camping, and you go to your little tent that you set up. It's a one-person tent, real small tent, and you bring your dog, and you're looking for the dog, and you go into the tent, and you look in the tent, and you don't see your dog. It's reasonable for you to believe that your dog is not in the tent if you can't see him. Right? It's reasonable to believe that if you can't see the dog in the tent, the, t- the dog is not in the tent. But if you go into that same tent and you're looking for no seams. It is not reasonable to believe that no seams are not in your tent just because you can't see them. What he's exposing is this fallacy of logic. It's a logical fallacy to say that you, you can't, uh, or just because you can't see that God is good in your suffering doesn't mean that he's not good in your suffering. Just because you can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means you can't see it. It just means you can't see it. It's not, it's not a logical reasonability that, that, that just because you can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means I can't see it. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, when you can't trace God's hand, you have to trust his heart. You have to trust his heart. Right, what he's saying there, what, what this is saying is, even though in, a, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the loss and the pain and the difficulty, it feels like I can't see God's goodness, doesn't mean he isn't good. Because who he is in his very essence, who he is in his very nature, is goodness. It flows from the core of his character, right? Mercy is who he is. Love is who he is. Kindness is who he is. Patience is who he is. Generosity is who he is. Wisdom is who he is. Peace is who he is. These are the goodness of God expressed because that's who he is. And so when you're in the midst of suffering, when you're in the midst of pain, and it feels like this is not who he is because I can't see it, you have to look out. You have to step back and say, no, what do I know is true even if I can't see it? What do I know is true about him? Just like David says, yet I know you are holy. You are holy. Because goodness is not just who he is. Goodness is what he's done. It's what he's done. When we rebel against him, he runs us down with his mercy. When we're shown hatred by others, he showers us with his love. 
When we live in bitterness towards our enemies, he counters us with his kindness. When we've given up on hope, he gives us patience in the storm. When we've doubled down uh, and and we try not to, to get worried about making ends meet, he's been generous beyond explanation. When we've lacked a way forward, his wisdom guides our steps. When our anxiety runs high, his peace runs deeper, right? God's goodness isn't something that, that, that he keeps to himself. He gives it away. He gives it away. He shares it with us. And so when was the last time? When was the last time you traced his goodness? Just tracing his goodness. And if you're like David and you can't find it in the moment in your life because it's so dark right now, find it in someone else's life. Right? This is the beauty of community. This is why God created the church for his people to live in community. Is so I can say when, when I'm in the dark place and I can't see God's goodness, I can look back over someone else's life and I can say, look at God's faithfulness in their life. Look at how God brought them through that pain in their marriage. Look at how God provided for them in their poverty. Look at how God gave them wisdom when they didn't know what would be next. Look at how God has been faithful. I mean, sometimes you just have to step back and you say, okay, God, I don't understand what's happening in my situation, but when I look out and I see your faithfulness in your people, I can trust you've been good. I can know this isn't just who you are. This is what you do. Think about that. When, When was the last time you traced God's goodness? Just take a step back and say, God, I've seen you faithful. I've seen you faithful over the generations. But how do do we know for sure? Because it's not just who he is. It's not just what he does. There's something else that's unique about God's goodness and suffering. And this is the last point, the suffering Savior. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 with me. David goes on to pray. He says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. This is where David's prayer starts to kind of go off the rails, and it gets a little unusual. Because David starts praying, and and he's giving these general explanations or or descriptions of what it's like to suffer, right? But now he gets real specific in the details, and it seems odd, because the details don't really match with David's life. I mean, look at uh, in the rest of the prayer. It's a long prayer. We only read the first eight verses. But you go through and you look at it. Verse 16, he starts to say, They have pierced my hands and feet. Then in verse 17, I can count all my bones. Then in verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I mean, these prayer or these details in the prayer don't fit David's life. There's nothing in the record of David's life that fits what's happening in this scene. And so scholars over the years have wrestled with what is David talking about, and there really is no natural explanation other than this. The best explanation for what David is praying is that it's not about David. The, the best explanation is that what David is praying is, a, is actually prophetic about one who would come after David, who would suffer like David is suffering, but in a much greater way. See, the best explanation is that the very words and gestures of Psalm 22 are only fully and finally fulfilled at the cross of Calvary. See, God may not have given David a direct answer right in the moment, right? He felt silent. He felt distant. But what God was doing is saying, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an answer later. And the answer is going to come in the person of Jesus Christ. 
It's going to come in these details that you're praying that maybe you don't even know what you're praying, but I'm going to fulfill them in his, in his person because God didn't want to give an answer from a distance. God was going to give an answer close up with his son. Listen, God's answer to our suffering is his own suffering. It's his own suffering. As Jesus was crucified, the events of Psalm 22 were fulfilled before all their eyes. The soldiers divided his garments and cast lots for his clothes. They pierced his hands and his feet, nailing them to the rugged cross. They mocked him, saying, God could deliver him now. If he was really his God, he could deliver him. You could count his bones as he hung naked on the cross, gasping for life without air. The Son of God cried out himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, there's no greater agony in all the world than losing a relationship. And, and the greater the relationship, the worse the agony, right? The greater the relationship, the worse the agony. And here, just imagine Jesus and the Heavenly Father have the best relationship that's ever existed in all the universe. The closest, most unified, most, most glorious relationship in all the world between the Father and the Son. And now, for the first time in all of history, Jesus is separated from his Father. There's no greater agony than the agony of the cross that Jesus endured as he's separated from the one he's loved forever. It's greater than all the physical agony. So why does Jesus endure this agony? It's for us. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us, with us in our pain, with us in our suffering, with us in our confusion, with us even in becoming sin for us. He becomes sin for us so that he can save us. Just as David said, David said, why are you so far off from saving me? God would say, I'm not far off at all. I'm near to the brokenhearted. I'm near to the crushed in spirit. I've come near to you in Jesus Christ so that you, even though you're separated in your guilt and shame, you are going to be near to me because of what I'm doing in Christ. He bears all our judgment, all our guilt. God's answer to our suffering is to suffer in our place. His answer to our sin is to become sin for us. His answer to all that's broken in the world is for him to be broken himself so that he can make us whole, so that he can make us new, so that he can prove to us he is good. See, the cross of Jesus, it galvanizes God's goodness. It proves to us forever, for all time, that, that Jesus is good because of what he has done for us. We can trust his goodness, even if we struggle to see his presence. But he's present. He's there. In the National Gallery of Art in London, uh, there's a painting that I believe is just titled The Crucifixion. It's, it's a very simple name, but it's a painting from the 15th century by an Italian artist by the name of uh, Giuliani uh, Mansuetti. And uh, he painted this, this uh, incredible painting of the, of the crucifixion, but when you look at it, you can't even tell right away that that's what the painting is. It's so dark. It's so dark, you can barely tell what's happening in the painting. And, and, and basically, if you stare at it long enough, you start to see in the middle of the painting that there's a figure. And, and the longer you kind of stare at it and glaze at it, you, you start to see that this is a crucified figure. You start to make out this is, this is Jesus in the middle of the painting. But it's so dark, you can barely see him. And then as, as you stare a little bit longer and, and you kind of just ponder it a little bit, you start to see behind Jesus in the darkness is another figure behind Jesus. 
And behind Jesus is, is this larger figure. And, and you look a little bit closer and you start to see it's God the Father. And God the Father in the darkness is holding up his hands on the cross. And it's this beautiful depiction, I believe, in the, in the darkness of all that's happening on the cross where Jesus himself is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels distant from his father, but his father's right there. He's present in the darkness. He's present in the pain. He's present in the suffering. He's there, even if he couldn't see him, even if he couldn't feel him. So as we close today, I just want to ask you this question. Do you need to find God in your suffering today? Because as we wrestle with this, this, this is not some theoretical idea. That This is not a philosophical problem at its core. What this is is a personal problem between us and God where we are wrestling with how do I deal with my suffering? How do I find him in my suffering? What I want you to ask today is do, do I need to find him? Because what, what he's offered today is, is he's, he's saying, you can come to me in the middle of the darkness. We don't have all the answers, right? We don't have answers for why. Hopefully, Lord willing, we will get answers for why when we get to heaven. But we do have answers for this. We have answers for who? We have an answer that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to take our sin, to take our guilt, to take our shame, and entered into suffering for us. So we know that we have a God who, who isn't distant from our suffering, but he's come very intimately close into our suffering. He's come for you and me. And so do you need to find him in it? Do you need to find him as you're crying out, God, I feel distant, I feel silent, I don't know where you are. He shows up in the midst of that cry. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to you, the suffering God, the suffering God, the one who answers our cries with your own pain, with your own tears, with your own blood. Lord, you know that uh, you know what it's like to feel forsaken. You know what it's like to have questions that aren't answered. You know what it's like to get a no when you want a yes. You know what it's like to lose loved ones and to weep over them. You know what it's like to be betrayed. You know what it's like to be misunderstood. You know what it's like. You are the God who suffers in our place so that you could bring us out of our sin and suffering. And so God, today, whether we feel like we can see you or hear you or, or maybe we feel far from you, we ask that your presence would be made known and that our faith would grow to see you in the midst of it, that we would know you as the good God who's revealed yourself as good, Thank you for your word that shows us that. Thank you for your spirit that confirms that in our spirit. But Lord, we ask that today you'd bring healing and hope in the midst of the darkness. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet this morning.